with this series that we titled Worthy. And uh, today, as we come to the message, I want to do a little exercise with you. I'm going to say a, a, a paragraph, and I want to see if you know where these words are from. Are you ready? Okay, let's try it. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate but equal important groups. The police, who investigate crime, and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. And I know that you might have went, dun dun. <laughs> you know where these words are from, right? And if you don't know, I'm, I'm sure you've said this. Law and order. What happens in law and order is that there's the beginning scene, there's somebody who commits a crime. But we're not sure the motive, we're not sure how, or even if that person committed the crime. But as the police begin their work, and they begin to investigate and to go to places and arrest criminals, we discover what the real cause, what the real crime was, and who was the perpetrator. But there's always a twist that can only be discovered in the court. That's when the prosecutors find out exactly how and who the crime was committed. Now, the seal number two, as we go into Revelation chapter six, is the law and order of God. It's when those who were against the people of God, those who were against the Lamb, those who are fighting the, in the conflict, conflict against the things and the people of God are found out. So let's go into our notes and let's go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 3, and we'll discover how God will solve, solve the crime in the world. Verse 3, when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Now, it is amazing that every time, every time that God is about to do something to the one that is showing the, the window of the, of the perspective of the plan of God, he always has this same word, come, come. Apparently, God is in the business or calling his people or calling us to come and find out the plans that he has for us. So we always hear the, the come. And then in verse uh, uh, 3, we, we see right there, when the Lamb opened the second seal, and we've been discovering that the only one who's worthy to open the seals of the, of the perspective of the history of the world from the, from the moment of the enthronement of Jesus is this Lamb, right? So he opens the seal, and now the second living creatures. Let's see if you remember. How many living creatures were in front of the throne? Four. Four. So now the second one. When we look at the order that we discover in chapter 4 and 5, we see that the first one was this lion, and the second one was like an ox. It depends on the version that you're reading. The second one is like a, like a ram. It depends what version of the Bible you read. But the, the example that is given us here is that this second creature has the form of an animal that was used in the temple sacrifice. Verse 4. Then another horse came out. Last week, we discovered the first horse. Remember? What color was that? White. So today, we go into the second one, a fiery red one. It was, it's right, it was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. 
And, and the first writer, the first horse we discovered that this white rider represents the truth of the gospel, represents the act of Jesus Christ as the victorious one, and, and the one who continuously is giving victory to those who trust him and follow him. Even today. But now when we go to this next rider, the color is no longer white. It says it's fiery red. The color of fire. The message is not as positive anymore because it says that peace is going to be taken away and conflict will appear because now people are going to be killing each other. Now, the fiery red. It's a little bit different than the carmine red that is used to represent the blood. This is fiery red. When fire is introduced in the language of the Bible, we know that there is judgment. Because that's what happened in Mount Carmel. There was a conflict. There were two sides of that conflict. Those who were the prophets of Baal and those who were faithful to God. In that case, it was the prophet Elijah. When fire descended from heaven, the sacrifice that was on the altar, the Bible tells us, was consumed. Because God sent that fire, and it was so hot that even the stones were melted. Think of this horse as being a judgment of God. Now, second part it says, he takes peace from the earth. What peace is this fiery horse taking away? Last week, we discover that what God wants is for the whole world to experience the peace that only Jesus can give. So now, this same peace is at stake. Because in the effects of this second writer, this peace is taken away because there's conflict. And this conflict will bring division. And then it says that to make people kill each other. Now this is not the kind of text that we read in Sabbath school or we, we tell our, our favorable to memorize. However, it's a very important text because this conflict or this division is not getting better. As we remember, in the first writer, it says I came from conquering and to conquer. And we discovered that it was a continuous thing that will end until Jesus returns. Just like that, this same conflict started when the second writer appears by the second seal and will continue to be present until Jesus returns. So it says that killing each other, which is not a good thing, but the word for killing here is it is very interesting because this killing is not like somebody who's fighting a battle. In fact, uses the language of a slain an animal in the like it was in the Old Testament sanctuary. So this is not the killing of war. This is the killing like a sacrifice. And then it says with a large sword. Now the sword is used in the Bible in different ways. In one of those ways. Is that sword is used 
as, rep as a representation of the word of God. However, there are two words or sword in the Bible. When we talk about the word of God, the, 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 the word that is used in the original language is the word Raphaya. Can you say Raphaya? And Raphaya means a long, long sword that those who wear on horses would use and they will come in a lot of real estate swinging that thing around. And when we, when we use that word, when that word is used in the Bible, it represents the word of God that has two edges and reaches. But in this case, the word is different. The word is Mahira. Can you say Mahira? Now, Mahira is a shorter sword. And it's never used when it talks about the word of God. In fact, the word, this, this same word, is the one used for the instrument that was used at the temple to kill the animals before sacrifice. So we see one thing, that the language that is being used here is the language of the sanctuary, not the language of battle. Now, the second seal of Babylon will bring us one idea. And the idea is that because it's using the language of the sanctuary, that is a, 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 a symbol, it, 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 it's pointing in the direction of the covenant of God. And it's showing us that there are going to be two sides on the covenant. One side that is going to be obeying the covenant, remaining with God, and one side that will be against it. Therefore, is the conflict. Because there are two sides. Now let's, let's look at the New Testament background. And let's go to John 16, verse 2. It's right there in your notes. It says, they will put, out, put you out of the synagogue. And remember, synagogue in the New Testament was like the church today. See, people didn't go to worship at the worship at the temple. The temple was only with the sacrifices and the, and the daily rituals were, were performed. But the synagogue was the place where people went to read the scriptures. Like Jesus, when he went to read the book of Isaiah at the temple, he went to the synagogue. So it says, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. And a great example of that is Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. In fact, uh, uh, we, we, we understand by the situation that he was one of the members of the Sanhedrin. And by being one of the members of the Sanhedrin, he was one of the top Jews. In fact, his credentials, he studied at the Philo Gamaliel, who represented the, the modern day, for example, Harvard. He studied with the best professors. But he was given authority, he was given credentials to go into the synagogues and persecute those who belong to the way, those who follow Jesus, those who believe on, on, on Jesus and follow his teachings. And he went from synagogue to synagogue, from city to city, persecuting them and killing them. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that he was holding the robes of the people who were throwing the stones to kill Stephen. And those of you who like Bible minutia, Stephen was the first martyr in the Bible the first one to die for the cause of Jesus. So now Saul is one of these examples of those who persecuted those faithful, those who were on the right side of the covenant, those who were faithful to Jesus Christ. Now some believe that the second seal refers to a Christian persecution. However, if it's Christian being persecuted, that's a one-sided thing. But this seal is talking about two sides. 
Because there is conflict. To kill each other, he says. And the letter to persecution and martyrdom does not really appear until the fifth seal is opened. So what is he talking about here then? Well, first, the seal speaks of a two-sided conflict. They're killing each other. So let's look at the background. And in the Bible, we find a background where God is in conflict. See, conflict is not new for the people of God. In fact, today, there's conflict in the people of God. There's conflict in the home. There's conflict in the family. There's conflict in marriage. There's conflict with our children. There's conflict in our finances. There's conflict in all kinds of our social life, in all areas. And there's conflict, of course, in our spiritual area. So conflict is not new for the people of God. Because it is during the toughest times and the hardest conversations when the light of God shines its brightest. The issue has never been the presence of conflict. The issue has always been whose side are you on? So let's go to the Old Testament and see the background of this conflict in God. In Isaiah 26.3, the prophet writes, You will keep in perfect peace. Now, if, if the verse was stopped right there, wouldn't it be awesome? And I know the one day we would have perfect peace. But as the prophet is writing, he's not writing for heaven, he's writing for us today. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. In other words, those who remain faithful, those who remain confident. Because they trust in you. So those who trust in God will remain faithful, will remain on the right side of the conflict. See, again, two groups are represented here. Those who are steadfast and those who aren't. Those who have peace and those who don't have peace. In, in the book of Judges, see, the book of Judges is very, very interesting. The people of Israel have already come out of Egypt, and, and, and God is giving them the promised land. And as you know, once they came to the promised land, to Canaan, there's people living already there. So they have to be the sheriff, and they have to evict all those who are there. So when, when they come, and they start fighting for the land, of course, there is resistance. And over the years, over the years, especially before there was a king in Israel, it was the period known as the period of the Judges. But the sad thing about the book of Judges is that it says, after each one of the Judges appears, and it says, and there was peace in the people, with the people of God, but then everybody did whatever they thought it was good according to themselves. And then things start going down again, and then God brings another judge. And things go well again for a few for a few years, and then again, and they did whatever they thought it was good before God. Kind of like today, right? <coughs> so, in those days of the judges, there was a, a, a group of, of gangsters. This could be the first gangster, the first mob. And these are the Midianites. See, the Midianites were very bright because they, like, they didn't like to do a lot of work. In fact, they let other people do the work for them. And what they did, it, it, 
it, it was that they didn't plant any seeds in it. They didn't uh, uh, have flocks or anything like that, like, like the Israelites. So what they did is that they waited for the time for the harvest. And once it was time for the harvest and the grain was already collected, they went and stole it from the Israelites. So the Bible tells us that in those days, there was a man, his name is Gideon. And what he's doing is that he's, he, he's sifting the wheat in a white dress. Have you seen the show, I Love Lucy, when she goes to Italy and is pressing the grapes? <laughs> That's a white dress. And a white dress was a, 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 a kind of a pool when they put all the grapes, all the grapes, and then people step on them, actually, and sit down through a channel into bases. So it was like a well. So what he's doing is that he's sifting the, the, the wheat in a white dress. Now to sift, sift the grain, what you need is wind, an open field, so that the wind can blow away. But what's happening with 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 uh, with, uh, with uh, Gideon is that he's hiding in a white dress. Why is he hiding? Because he knows that the Midianites will come and will take away his wheat. So he's hiding. And the angel of God appears before him and says, oh, Gideon, man of valor. And he's like, oh, me, I'm hiding. What are you talking about? And he said, you know, Gideon, you're going to free the, the people of Israel from the Midianites. And he's like, nah. He's like, yeah, God is going to use you. And they have a meal together. So Gideon goes to his house and says, God, if it's really me, Let's do this little test. I'm going to put this fleece of wool right here. And in the morning when I wake up, I'm going to come and check it out. If it is dry around it, and the fleece is wet, I know that you, that you really want me to do that. So he goes to bed, he wakes up in the morning, goes to check out on the fleece, and guess what? It was wet and dry around it. But he says, God, no, wait, wait, wait. That was way too easy because the fleas, you know, absorb all the moisture from around it. So, no, no, let's do it again. But this time, let's do it the other way around. In the morning, the fleas is going to be dry and everything around the way. So he goes to bed. Wakes up in the morning, goes to check out on the fleas, and guess what? No, the fleas is dry. So, like, God, okay. Let me make a parenthesis here. A lot of times we want God to act in our lives. That our prayers are made. We just pray for God to do something. In fact, we pray, God, use me. But we don't know on what or how. I think that what God wants us to do is to pray in a way that a sign is shown. Just next time you pray, next time you have a doubt about something, tell God, God, if this is really what you want to do, is this really what you, the way you want me to go? Let this happen. Or let this not happen. I suggest something that happens all the time, let this not happen. Something that never happens, let this happen. See, God is waiting for us to ask Him to show His wisdom, His power, His direction for his plans to us. But we're kind of afraid. And we don't ask. We put like Gideon. We hide it in the white bridge, but we don't ask for the sign. So now Gideon goes with, with makes a call, right? Puts a dad and, 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 and makes an event on Facebook and sends it out to Israel. And 30,000 people come up. And God tells them, no, 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 Gideon, you know what? There are way too many. 
But you know, we're fighting the billionaires, God. Ah, no, there are way too many. So he says, you know, as you go through the drive-thru, those who order a drink are not going. So he goes to the drive-thru and half of them drink. So, okay, only 15 guys. And God says, no, no, wait, there are way too many. There are way too many. And, and he goes to Gideon in several ways until there's only 300. 300. And God says, okay, Gideon, we're ready. Wait, 300? There's 100,000 of them. 300 is enough. And he says, this is the plan. You're going to get a jar, and you're going to get a torch for each one of them. And you're going to divide them. Well, divide them again? Yes, you're going to have 100 here, 100 there, and 100 here. And what you're going to do is that end the night, you're going to go to the hills, and, and you're going to scream for Gideon and for, and for the Lord, for Gideon and for the Lord. And once you do that, you break the jars, and the torches will come out, and they will see the light. So God tells Gideon, what we're going to do is going to, we're going to create a surround sound effect. So the 100,000 Midianites are sleeping in their tents. And there's 100 over there, 100 over there, and 100 here. And they have the jars covering their torches. And they begin to scream, For Gideon for the Lord, for Gideon for the Lord. And they're over there, For Gideon for the Lord, for Gideon for the Lord. And they're over here, For Gideon for the Lord. Now, you know, like when you have to sleep in the sermon and the pastor screams and you wake up like, what? You know, like, that, like what's going on? So, 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 so now they're all startled and then they see torches over there, torches over there, torches over here. And they're all confused. Notice what happens. Verse 22, Judges chapter 7. It's right there in your notes. When the 300 trumpets, how many? How many million? A hundred thousand. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord cost. Who caused? The Lord. And you're like, the Lord. Who caused it? The Lord. The Lord. Caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Let me read that again. I don't think you guys got it. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. How many people did Gideon kill? None. Notice what it says. The army fled to Beth Chita towards Zerah, as far as the border of El Mehoah near Tabat. And that means a lot to us. Because they escaped. Those who remained escaped. And out of the 100,000, they killed each other. And the rest scattered. Gideon was used by God not to kill people, but to become his instrument for him to pass judgment on those who were against him. But Gideon acted in the name of the Lord. And in that way, he became what the angel had already told him he was, a man of courage, a man of valor. So again, we see people who are on the right side of the covenant, those who are on the other side of the covenant, and the one who, the one who does the killing is the Lord. God fought the battles for the Israelites family, and the conflict is a constant thing for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and today. Conflict is not something that we should avoid or, or something that we should be afraid of or ignore. Conflict 
It's an opportunity for the triumph of grace in our lives. God promised to fight for us. And our job is to trust Him. Just like He did with Gideon. In the New Testament, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Does that sound familiar? Verse 35, where I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And some of you are thinking, that's my house. <laughs> but that's not the kind of conflict he's talking about. This is the kind of conflict that relates to those who accept the rights out of the covenant and are in conflict with those who haven't. Verse 36, a man's enemies will be the members of his own house. Again, Jesus presents two groups. Those who are on the rights of the covenant and those who aren't. So the conflict will bring consequences, some spiritual consequences. And, and, and the best way to describe this, these consequences are in the words of Jesus. You see, Jesus speaks in Matthew 24. And, and let me give you a short theological class here, theology class here. The Gospels are divided in, in two groups. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic Gospels. Optic as eyes, vision, perspective, and seeing means together. So that means that these three Gospels are called the synoptic because they have the same perspective. They tell the story from Jesus' birth all the way until Jesus leaves pretty much the crucifixion. But there's another Gospel, and that's John. And John changes the perspective because John does not talk about those same stories. He talks about his own stories that identify Jesus as who he is and what he does. These are more theological. So, because this text that we're going to read appeared in Matthew, in Matthew 24, it's called the Apocalypse in the Gospels. It's called the Synoptic Apocalypse. So in other words, Jesus in Matthew 24 is telling us what John writes in detail in Revelation. Are you with me? So the first thing that Jesus tells us that it will happen as a consequence of this fiery red fire is that first, there's going to be violence. And in Matthew 24, 10, Jesus says these words. Uh, many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. So notice the progression of this text. The hate between people does not happen until a decision for Jesus occurs. Are you with me? So only until people make a decision to be on the rights of the covenant or not that the conflict occurs. So again, Jesus points to the two sides, and the two sides are directly a consequence of the decision for Christ. Either we choose for the right side of the covenant, or for the wrong side of the covenant. For the side of God, and accept Jesus as the Lord, or not accepting Jesus, rejecting Him. Right? It says right there, they will turn away from me and betray each other and hate each other. So Jesus is saying, What's going to happen? The conflict arises because people will make a decision and the decision is going to be between those who trust me and those who don't. And that is going to be the cause of hate. The second thing that Jesus teaches is that there's going to be victory. And he says in verse 13, 
but the one who endures, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But the one who endure until the end will be saved. Just like Isaiah, those who remain steadfast. Same language. Same thing. Is there going to be conflict? Yes. It's part of our existence. It's part of the people of God. Conflict has always been there. So the issue is not the conflict. The issue is not the presence of conflict. The issue is who's on your side. Or on whose side you are in the conflict. And Jesus already has said that. That that was going to occur. And the third consequence. Is there will be a barrier. A barrier. A choice, a decision, a judgment. And in Matthew 24, 50, it says. The master will return and announce an unexpected Who's the master? Jesus. The master will return and announce an unexpected. And he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him in a place with the hypocrites. Could that be that there's people on the wrong side of the covenant who claim to be people of God? In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Question. Who's doing the fighting here? God. It's not us. It's God. Our job is not to fight. Our job is to trust. Our job is to believe. Our job is to rely on the one who's already conquered and is bent on conquering. Our job is to accept that the power of the first rider, or the power of the rider of the white horse, is still active and present today. Amen. So there's a promise. And the promise is that even in the middle of the conflict, Jesus can be victorious. The high points of history of God, people, are stories not of fleeing. Conflict, not escaping conflict. See, the stories of the people of God are not, are not people who, who try to avoid conflict. No, not at all. In fact, are the stories of people who move towards conflict. See, we see the apostles. And, and see, one of the one of the great evidences in this scene of trial and judgment. It's that one of the great evidences of the reality and the, and the truth of Jesus coming to this earth is that there were people, not just 12, not just 70, not just 500, but thousands who were willing to die for the name of Jesus. I think that if you are willing to die for something, it's because you know 100% that it's true. And when the disciples were willing to give their life, when the apostles and their followers and the early Christians were giving to give their were willing to give their life, that means that they had a hundred percent certainty that Jesus is the Lord. Because Jesus meets us in the conflict. Notice what the way Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So in other words, Jesus goes ahead of us. 
He's the one that leads us through the conflict and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So see, when we follow Jesus in this progression of victory, we are on the right side of the covenant. In contrast to those who are on the wrong side. And then says verse 16. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Apparently Paul understood that there was only one who was worthy. There was only one who can lead into victory. But see today. What is your call? What is the thing that is tearing you apart? What is the situation that you find through? And you see, the majority of us who are adults, and some of us younger people, have gone or are today in the middle of trouble. And because you are a follower of Jesus, there's going to be people who are going to bring you conflict. There's going to be situations in which your faith is going to be in conflict with the status quo. There's going to be moments when you have to make a decision in this issue, in this reality, in this moment of our life, where do I stand? But the one thing that you should never do is to choose the side of comfort. The, the, the side that is politically correct, the side that is what everybody else is thinking or what my group is supporting, the choice that you have to make in the middle of conflict is not the choice that helps you to see in the short moment and situation time frame, but is the one that makes you and leads you at the end when the perspective of the whole history of the world is demonstrated. You have to look at the big picture. Because at the end, the one with the long sword, the one that wins the battle, will always win. We've seen, we read the last chapter, we, we saw the credits already scrolling. We know who wins. But in those moments of conflict, you have to make a choice. And it is my prayer that our choice is to choose the right side of the covenant. The right side of Jesus leads us into victory. Because it is Him who will tell us it is well.